0: Each week, host Roy Richards, an expert on midlife renewal and author of A Midlife Challenge, Wake Up, will discuss the challenges common to middle age and help guide you to a brighter tomorrow. Now, here's Roy.
1: Well, hello and welcome to this week's edition of Middle Age Can Be Your Best Age. We're so happy and proud to have you here with us today. And I want to start today's program by asking you a question. And if you really think about it, the answer may be surprising to yourself. The question is, when was the last time you had a conversation with someone, perhaps your wife, your teenage son or daughter, a close friend, a co-worker, or maybe a person you hardly knew and just bumped into, where you truly listened to the other person's point of view, completely open-minded, rather than simply defending your own point of view? And of course, I'm not talking about someone who uh, agrees with everything that you say, like maybe... uh, At a political uh, convention or something, I'm talking about someone that uh, probably has a lot different uh, ideas of what's right and wrong than you do. And my guest today, author and true Renaissance man Ivan Obolensky, contends that in today's overly connected society, there is very little real connection between individuals. Ivan calls it a conversation crisis. And he argues, and I think most of us can agree, that deterioration in the art of communication can be seen not only across the kitchen table or in the conference room in our workplace, but in fact anywhere folks have face-to-face conversations and also on the national and international stages. And in the U.S., yes, I'm talking politics. In fact, an October 8, 2019 article in the Wall Street Journal contends that today's politics may be bad for your health. A September study found that politics is a source of stress for 38% of Americans. Tens of millions of us us see politics as extracting a toll on our social, psychological, emotional, even on our physical health. And if you have cable TV or other access to 24-7 news channels, try this experiment. First, tune in Fox News Channel, and after a few minutes, switch to MSNBC. And I'll bet if you don't know better, you'd swear you were in a different country, maybe even on a different planet. On Fox News, you'll learn that the evil Democrats, seeking in every turn to overcome the 2016 election of the Honorable Donald J. Trump, who has been accomplishing great things for our country, despite Democratic efforts to discredit and impeach him on fallacious charges even before his first day in office. And switch over to MSNBC, and you'll learn of the brave Democratic congresspersons fighting a valiant and wholly justified fight to remove a corrupt, unethical president who considers himself above the law and has committed high crimes and misdemeanors against our country. And in my lifetime, I've never seen partisanship in the U.S. so virulent, really not uh, improving life or well-being for anyone. And in Great Britain, it's all about Brexit, yes or no and under what terms. In the interim, why can't politicians come together to solve some of our countries and the world's problems? Uh, But uh, for now, enough of politics. Ivan Omolensky is here to help each one of us achieve a better connection with folks around us those we love and admire, and those we interact with routinely or maybe only once. And if we learn to effectively communicate, our daily experience will be so much more peaceful, more joyful, and we might even learn uh, that some of those who have opposing viewpoints have some valid points and make a lot of sense. And before I introduce Ivan Obolensky, here's his background. He's vice president of Dynamic Doingness, Inc., a firm that specializes in Spanish translations that work across the Spanish markets from Mexico to Argentina and they are a full service boutique and also offer expert teams for Brazilian Portuguese, French, Canadian, and Select European and Asian languages, and clients include Cisco Systems, Conica Minolta, and Toshiba America Inc. And Ivan shares his expertise through thought-provoking online articles about current affairs, social sciences, and the finance sector, and all of his articles are translated into Spanish, and unlike a lot of us men whose hidden boss is our wife, Ivan's actual boss is his spouse, Mary Jo Smith Obolensky, founder of Dynamic Doing This Inc., and here's the uh, a first for this program. Ivan Obolensky is author of the critically acclaimed self-published 2018 novel, I Am the Moon, and we've introduced lots of authors, but never a successful novelist. And hello, Ivan, we're indeed honored to have you with us here today.
0: Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Well, why do you think it is that uh, there's so little real connection and understanding between individuals today? What's what's the causing of all this?
0: I think some of it has to do with the lack of face to face. I mean, much of the communication that happens nowadays occurs um you know without the person seeing the other person and <laughs> yeah. I think there's there's an awful lot of that and I, I, you know there's good reasons for it, and speed and everything like that is all very true, but I also think that you can lie a lot better. <laughs> Yeah, with, um, I mean, you,
1: don't, you don't have to face someone. It's easier to, to criticize. I, I like the way that you I think said, said that uh, technology actually reinforces our desire for convenience, speed, and availability over a true connection. <laughs> that's so true. Also,
0: it is true, and you know, technology is that's it's convenient, and yeah. uh, the problem with convenience is. <laughs> you go along with it and, you know, you go down that slippery slope and once you sort of hit it, uh, you know, you it's hard to put on brakes and uh, we do have a problem with that. I think also the, you know, emails, you know, it's nuanced and you can't quite read the data of, you know, with a person's expression, you can usually tell if somebody's saying a half-truth. Sometimes, you know, a really good liar will, of course, get away with anything, but <laughs> Yeah, they're good. At poker. <laughs> and it's like they're good at poker, but you know, in most conversations, that isn't the case. And um, well, your expression is part of the uh, the message, so to speak. And I think that's that's lost. So you know, you definitely, if you want to get a good conversation, it's best to do it face to face.
1: Well, although you attended Boston University, you presently are located in the country of Uruguay. Do you see the conversation crisis and contentious political climate as a unique U.S. Uh, phenomenon, or do you observe the same communication fractures in other, numerous other countries around the globe? And for instance, what's the situation in South America? I know uh, there's plenty of conversation problems in uh, Venezuela. <laughs>
0: Oh golly! There is no it's um that uh, that is its own thing um in Uruguay, you see a lot less people on phones. I mean that may have something to do with the sidewalk because <laughs> in Montevideo, some of the, you know, if you start looking at your phone, you're gonna trip and fall flat on your face sometimes <laughs> but um there is a a lot less of that um in the United States again if we look at it historically about every eighty years you know, the U.S. and and goes through a, uh, a turmoil. Uh, yeah. If you flip 80 years back, you get the Civil War. And actually, I mean, as strange as it sounds, uh, during that time, it, it's actually, uh, we're pretty tame compared to the way it was back then. Uh, that may not seem possible, but it's true. I mean, the most hated president probably that ever existed was a, a Lincoln. yeah I and mean,
1: he was not, Certainly, in some parts of the country he was
0: and he, and he was uh, and um, nobody liked him um and it was uh quite a, a very contentious i mean you don't have people beating people with canes you know, in the middle of the Senate, which you did have back then uh so there are there are pluses i mean it's not all bad, but um you know you could definitely i think there's also there's also a huge propaganda machine I mean, let's put it this way free sound again the, one of the interesting things about sound bites is the less communication that you say the more easily it can be spun in different directions. (laughs) Um, One of the things that, uh, you know, there was, if you look at data, whatever that is, um, any data is theory-laden. That is that data in and of itself means nothing. It has to have some sort of a context in order to make it make sense. (laughs) And uh, when you take a a tiny little datum like um, he's bad, well, you know, or something. You can you can twist that into a, a in an amazing array of of different scenarios, and uh... you know, even if a person says, "Well, he said this is bad," but you know, taken out of context, could mean anything.
1: <laughs> well, do you agree that lack of communication skills begin in our youth? Eating out in restaurants, my wife Lori and I often observe teenagers, even young children at neighboring tables that are all engrossed in their smartphones, socializing electronically or playing video games, basically ignoring their parents, siblings, and anyone else at the table? Should we parents ban the presence of smartphones, iPads, and other electronic devices at the dinner table or maybe other family time or study time during evenings and weekends? How should we uh, crack down on that?
0: Well, I would think that would be sort of a minimum at the dinner table. I mean, it's yeah. it's hard, but you know that would be something. I mean, you know, I mean, when I was growing up, we were certainly weren't allowed to receive phone calls no. during dinner. I mean, no, that right, would have been amazing done. when
1: these kids sit there staring at these little iPads or iPhones and paying no attention to anyone else around them.
0: <laughs> oh, I totally understand it it drives me crazy because you also you see people out on dates and you see them they're looking at their screens and i you know you just wonder who they're texting maybe they're texting each other but it is really strange (laughs) and now i must admit that is a sort of tendency to see that in the united states i have um i do see it down here a little bit but not as much and it is Why, it's about 10 years behind the
1: times, which is um, a <laughs> blessing. behind the times.
0: <laughs> yeah, so that's, that, it's great. And being down here in the south, it's you can feel it all going on up there up north, and you go, boy, I'm sure glad I'm down here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, let's get down to where rubber meets the road. What steps do our listeners need to adopt right now in order to create more meaningful conversations? Can you give us a few uh, ideas on what we can do to, to have these more meaningful conversations with each other?
0: I think uh, the first thing is you've got to be curious about the other person. Yeah, I um, the funny thing all. I've noticed, <laughs> I, I, it sounds strange, but, you know, I mean, genius and curiosity go hand in hand. And uh, you have to be curious about people. Um, everyone has a story, and I tell you, if you dig deep, you're going to find some which will just blow your socks clean off. Yeah. Um, and they do it. Everyone has a story, and um, usually more than one. And yeah. so you've got to know that they exist there. And a lot of times, there's uh, they've got a lot of knowledge that you don't have, uh, yeah. whether educational or just even if it's just parochial. I mean, they're just, they've been there in a long time. And time, experience matters. Uh, in, you know, today's age, you know, you want it instantaneous. And again, the experience is sort of downplayed because it's not yeah. new. But yeah, the fact the, the other matter people is... People don't
1: think us dinosaurs have any real value in our experience, it seems like. They know it all. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. Or they find it out on the Internet or something to that effect. And, and and I think, you know, one of the things that ties humanity together are the stories that we have. And if you don't know the stories, you know, you really don't know what is going on in another person's head. And that can, I mean, from, a, from one point of view, it can take you unawares. But at the other point of view is that it can really... Uh, expand your own. So that would be the first thing I think you'd have to do is you'd have to be curious. I think manners are also really important um, because they tend to grease the wheel, so to speak. If yeah. you have good manners, and uh, that means that you are looking out, it's not egocentric in the sense that you're looking after yourself. It's more how you, you know, create an interaction that is yeah. um, smooth. And with that, that's another thing which I think is really, really important. And uh, these things, I mean, I think my parents told me the same thing. <laughs> probably their parents. timeless knowledge. But, okay. It is, but it is timeless knowledge. I mean, with good manners, you can uh, you can open all sorts of doors. It's it's extraordinary.
1: And I don't think you have to enter every time you enter into a conversation like you're going to have to win the argument. You're always thinking uh, that, that ahead, was, how do I respond, and <laughs> how do I get my point okay. across, because I'm always right.
0: <laughs> well, exactly, but if you're doing that, you see, the funny thing is, you're not listening.
1: No, that's true.
0: <laughs> you know, you have to, to listen. you gotta, you got to have the attention on the other person, and that means not trying to form... I used to do this all the time. It was really funny. It was a bad habit. I'd always formulate my answer while... The person was talking and you know and i don't know what but it just i realized it was really a um it was a protective thing you know maybe i was too scared of looking stupid or something, which, you know, after, you know, 50, 60 years, you've, you've looked stupid so many times, it really doesn't matter, <laughs> so, but but that seems to be the case, and uh, yeah, you have to, you have to pay attention, which means you have to listen, and um, there was that old thing I remember on, uh, you know, from various sales things or whatever, is, you know, you were given two ears and one mouth, you know, it's good uh, you know, spent twice the time listening as you are. Um, you'll probably do pretty
1: well and you really have to respect the other person as a child of god just like you are and you got to think win-win i think if possible obviously you're not going to agree on everything but uh, you you leave with respect and if you disagree you respectfully disagree and uh, leave as friends hopefully not enemies
0: No, I well, totally agree with that. That's the best way to be. Uh, my mother's always said to be don't have something good to say. Don't say it. And, you know, the <laughs> weird part about it was not only was she right, I've looked at a lot of very successful people, and one of the things they tend to do is not burn their bridges.
1: Yeah, that's for sure. Well, in your promotion, you warn us at all costs not to commit a suicide. What in the heck is a suicide, and how do, what do we do to avoid it? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I think, you know, the suicide, I think, it, again, comes down to, you know, not being interested in the world and being more interested in a synthetic world than yeah. necessarily uh, the real world. And and that gets very, very strange. Um, it's something which... Uh, the mind is really easy you can manufacture anything and you know the internet and a lot of that is a is a synthetic it is not necessarily real and yet it is it's in that sort of quasi state which makes things really really interesting but I think if you disconnect from the world and disconnect from people ultimately you are isolated and isolated is the one thing that we have a genetic trait or actually there was a study done having to do with two-year-olds and chimps oh. and orangutans and um, it turns out you know they were trying to figure out well who's more intelligent well frankly the monkeys were more intelligent <laughs> um, but what the what the kids had or the human kids had was a tendency uh an inclination to cooperate and one of the reasons why the study was done on people of such young age was they were figuring that by that time you wouldn't have um, like the environment sort of coaxing behavior would be more sort of self-expressed. And so we do have a cooperation gene or a, an attribute which allows us to cooperate. And that's one of the really great things that we do have, but when you prevent that I mean, that's why isolation is considered to form a torture. Yeah. Uh, but you see, we're sort of doing that ourselves, um, and that's uh, that gets into a whole other thing. <laughs> you know, there was a there was a whole bunch of experiments done on rats in Canada in the sixties. And um, they had to do that one of the rats when they they gave them free food and, you know, they could do whatever they wanted and they, you know, the population boomed and then it collapsed. But one of the things that one of the products of this sort of free for all was the beautiful ones and the beautiful ones were sort of stupid. And all they did was groom themselves all day. They were really good-looking rats.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but, Sounds like a lot of good-looking people. <laughs>
0: yeah, I know. It, it, it is no, it's just weird. But isolation is one thing. I think that really that that is a that is a form of suicide, and uh, because it goes contrary to what we are. And if and I the, could,
1: and if so. you if you commit a suicide, you just assume. Everything is the way you think it is. <laughs> and
0: yes, that's kind you of do. A fatal disease. <laughs> I know. I mean, when you when you think about it, I mean, we may have millions and trillions of pieces of information in our heads, but when you multiply that by all the other people and creatures on Earth, the information that is available outside oneself is far larger. And um, I know there is a law having to do with connections and you know the value of a. Of, of an organization is proportional to the amount of, you know, active context that it actually has. Yeah. But I think also the value of something and the intelligence is dependent upon the amount of data that one actually has on something. And uh, you only have a small part, so I think you're missing the big picture big time. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, you've got to connect really beyond yourself to get the full picture. And if you just assume that you have all the, knowledge that's needed and refuse to open your mind to what someone else says or what the spirit tells you is a fact beyond yourself, you're really gonna commit that assumicide all the time. And have a pretty petty existence. Well let's talk about a totally different subject. Let's talk about your critically acclaimed debut novel, Eye of the Moon. Critics on Amazon describe your book as a gothic mystery of the finest order, a page-turner you will not be able to put down, filled with secret treasures, twists, and turns, and the paranormal. Can you please give us a broad overview of the uh, novel's setting and the circumstances? I think it's fascinating.
0: Sure, I can do that. Um, It started with, um, okay, uh, my father... Well, we'll even go back farther. My grandfather, my grandmother had a house built for them up in Rhinebeck, New York by Vincent oh. Astor. And that was a nice and it was it was nice and it was large. And um my grandmother was very much into mysticism and oh. Egyptology and she oh. she died reading the Egyptian Book of the Dead and that was that was exciting. I mean, for us, you know, uh, when we were growing up, it was always on a need to know um i mean our family was sort of like an intelligence service Uh, you you didn't need to know it you didn't know it and um and there were all sorts of stories but you know you're a kid and you're smart and you listen and um then there was the thing about you know there was theoretically a ghost we had one governess that wouldn't return to that place because we would go there on vacations and um yeah that was one thing and um, I thought that was always very exciting. It was such a creepy place. It wasn't really creepy. It just had a an ambiance that sort of just mm-hmm. unsettled you. And um, then I saw a, a W magazine article on my grandmother on Alice Astor, and she said, and it said that you know she may have been murdered. I thought this was phenomenal. (laughs) I don't believe it. But, you know, I thought about it and said, well, it's possible. So I came up with a, um, so I decided to do a a novel about this. And I had a lot of difficulty trying to figure out how to come up with a story. So what I did was I gave myself five days in terms of novel time. That is to say, whatever was going to happen had to happen within those five-day periods. And then it had to happen at Rhinebeck and um uh, and then, uh, I did not have a plot I just um I wrote it um, which is really <laughs> frank uh, it it just sort of flowed. I did get into some points where you know I was freaking out because I had painted myself into such a horrendous corner that I didn't quite know what to do with um I managed to get through that, and uh <laughs> I came up with a solution. And and that was that was great because I think authors have to do that. What they they need to paint themselves into horrific corners, and they can't just you know go poof solve it. They have to think out how to do this. And uh, my people are pretty the people in the novel are are pretty sharp. So you know I had to think a lot about that of what these guys were up to. So it was really exciting, and um and that's how the the novel was 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 put there Uh I mean, the paranormal element of it runs through but you know it also has to maintain a, a sense of plausibility yeah um, and you know a lot of people wanted more of that so you know i'm writing the second i'm about 30 oh, chapters okay. in and you know that's tending to you know it's and the same characters are there yeah. i mean you know i i just continued and i just gave it two weeks and boom one more time wow. and um you know, our protagonist, Percy, is in even more trouble than he was before. Oh, so, Percy. great. <laughs> well, in first personal
1: i previewed the first couple of chapters on Amazon and was greatly intrigued by characters like uh, Johnny's white bull uh, terrier dog, Robert the Bruce, and the strikingly beautiful heiress oh, Bernhild von Hoffman still, and the stunning black hair and her electric blue eyes. And I also enjoyed the uh, highly embarrassing dog incident in New York's Central Park, which introduced Johnny Dodge and Brunhilde to each other. (laughs) That's just uh, a preview of the kind of uh, great uh, scenes that are provided in the book. Uh, Sounds like a great read. Where's the best place for listeners to go to preview and purchase your book, Eye of the Moon?
0: I think, you know, Amazon works, uh, just get on, otherwise you can go to my website, which is IvanObolensky.com, but Amazon will definitely get you all the editions that are available, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, you know, a two its isn't exactly, you know, the most expensive novel that ever got written, um, but it's, you know, it's, it's good, you know, you have a 92% chance of liking it. Um, <laughs> based upon the numbers that I've run and, you know, quite a number of different pieces of well, feedback. that's great. Uh,
1: well, uh, you, I noticed not only that, you have uh, another website where you have all your articles. And uh, give us that website also. It's the business website. that. Uh,
0: that's an, um, like. It's called dynamicdoingness.com. And uh, if you go to that or, you know, if you put Ivan Obolensky in Dynamic Doingness, It'll come up to the website, and then you click on the articles. The articles are, you know, for the most part, well, they're about a lot of things, but they're pretty well researched. Um, They're interesting. They're, you know, uh, they take a different view and connect many different dots, so that you can sort of see the world in a different way, and that's that's the point of that.
1: That's great. Well, clearly, you and I, as individuals, are harming our relationships, spawning our prejudices and increasing stress through an inability to communicate sensibly, including genuine listening to what others have to say in the home, on the job, in social relationships, and in the community. And not only that, as my guest Ivan Oblinsky points out, the conversation crisis extends to our politicians at all levels and the media personalities who report on them. And Donald quit using Twitter all the time. (laughs) Let's go face-to-face with other folks and get some stuff done. And I would say the same to the Democrats, because we can't change the world overnight, but we certainly can possibly alter our little corner of it. The next time you have a disagreement with someone, take time to really listen without interrupting and relate to them as someone important who has something to say. And your goal, either reach an agreement or part on good terms, with a mutual understanding of how and why you disagree, but how you can get together on other subjects and agree and have a great relationship, even though you may not be 100% in sync with everything. And I guarantee over time this will lead to more positive, stress-free, and probably a longer life for you and those around you. And I highly recommend uh, Ivan Obolinsky's book, and you can find that on Amazon. What's the name of that book again?
0: Eye of the Moon.
1: Eye of the Moon, Do <laughs> you didn't remember. And thank you so much, <laughs> Ivan, uh, for your wise insight, best of success in your business and with your novel.
0: Thank you very much, Roy. Well, thanks to our esteemed guest,
1: Ivan Obolensky. He's our first guest ever from South America. And uh, Ivan hits the nail right on the head when he talks about the conversation crisis, our failure to communicate with each other, not just in the U.S., but in countries around the world. And I'd like to close today's program with a brief discussion of a problem that's more likely to confront you as you progress through middle age, and that's age discrimination, hidden or otherwise, if and when you seek a new job, or perhaps a higher job in your present organization. And we'll also talk about three unique ways to combat it. And my ideas were taken from an October 6, 2019 Job Network article by Eric Tittner in our local Sunday newspaper. And when it comes to interviewing, the unfortunate truth is that the rules of fairness and objectivity don't always apply to all people in all situations. And I might add that the laws against age discrimination sometimes also don't apply. Although we may like to think that HR professionals and hiring personnel stick solely to experience and qualifications when making their decisions, the truth is they're just people and they are subject to the same biases as everyone else. Among those biases is making judgment about people based on their age. Ageism is still an issue in all aspects of society, and the professional world is not immune. The bias can go both ways during an interview, depending on who's making the judgment based on a candidate's age, being older to be a sign of valuable experience and wisdom the way we want it, or an indication that you're lacking energy and that your skills are out of date or you're not up on the latest trends, especially technology. Sometimes biases based on age can work in your favor, and sometimes they can work against you, unfortunately. But there is an aspect of ageism that you do have under your control, how you respond to it, if and when it rears its head, even subtly it seems to be there during an interview. If you're concerned that your age may be a potential issue on interviews, considering the following strategies. One, beat it to the punch. If age is a potential source of concern for you or you think it is for your interviewer, then get out in front of it on interviews. If you're an older candidate, make sure you give off the impression that you're energetic and current. And here's the bottom line. Everything from the outfit you wear to the things you say and how you carry yourself, uh, including how you express your understanding of technology, will be on full display. So every aspect of your interview game should highlight the fact that the stodgy old biases against old age don't apply to you. Strategy number two, shine a light on it. Sometimes in life, the best way to get through a roadblock is is by going straight ahead through it. And if you're worried about ages and during interviews, then be bold and address it overtly during your conversation. Discuss your age and convince interviewers that it's not an issue. If you have tangible on-the-job examples, uh, to attest to this, even better. In fact, make turning your age, whatever it is, into a huge favor, Be sure to handle this professionally and appropriately, and you just might impress whoever is sitting on the other side of the table with your competence and candor. And the third strategy is to work around it. Sometimes in life and in interviews, subtlety is the best strategy. Working around your age just might be the approach you want to take. How? By overwhelming the interviewer with so many compelling reasons that you're the right candidate for the job that even if your age is a potential issue, it won't matter because you're simply too good to pass up. Focus on your strengths and make sure that interviewers see and fully believe every last one of them. Are you worried that ageism might be an issue on your interviews and want to deal with it? Well, considering using one of the three strategies I just discussed from adversely impacting your chances of landing that dream job. And that's our program for today. Please don't fail to visit our webpage, middleagerenewal.com. We have free resources on it, including 10 videos on the benefits of midlife renewal. I'd also like to speak with your group uh, and do some inspirational uh, workshops for you. Uh, and don't forget my book, A Midlife Challenge, Wake Up, by Roy C. Richards. That's your comprehensive step-by-step guide to a joyful and productive second half of life. And you'll find it on Amazon and BarnesandNoble.com, both in print and ebook form. And thank you for tuning in